<laughs> All right, take two. Hi, welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Okay, so this week, well, first of all, this is going to be our 20th episode. Holy moly. All right. So we have a special case today for you guys. This week, we're going to be covering the mysterious death of Lynn Lemke. So one of our listeners reached out and asked us to cover her aunt's case. So her name is Kayla. So hi, Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Lynn Lemke is Kayla's aunt. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for the case suggestion. I hope that you feel that we do your aunt's case justice. So Kayla's sister, Jill, has a really awesome podcast that is basically a big deep dive into the case. So that's okay. where I got all my information. The podcast is called When Suicide is Murder. It's a really oh, great okay. podcast. I highly recommend you all go and listen to it, especially if you're really interested in this case, because obviously there you'll get way more in-depth information. Okay. Lynn Suzette York was born on August 1st, 1955. As a child, it was determined that Lynn suffered from epilepsy, and so she had frequent seizures. Okay. Because of this, Lynn suffered neurological damage, which resulted in some erratic behavior and some depression. Okay. Her seizures made it hard for her to maintain a job, and it was something that she found personally embarrassing because she never knew when she was going to collapse in public. Wow, okay. So at the age of 18, Lynn got pregnant with a son, Stephen, but her relationship with the father didn't last long, and he was never really in Stephen's life once the couple separated. Okay. However, shortly after, Lynn married a man named Don, who basically treated Stephen as his own, and the couple ended up having three children together as well. So there was four kids all together. Okay. Lynn had had some violent incidents in her past. Her family believes that those incidents are basically a direct result of the neurological damage she suffered due to her epilepsy she would kind of have like violent episodes sometimes like violent episodes like against people or just both like she would like occasionally throw things she kind of had erratic behavior at times oh, okay okay unfortunately at the age of 12 Stephen and the couple's other three children were taken away by CPS. Oh, okay. And that was due to Lynn's kind of propensity for these violent outbursts. And as well, her husband, Don, was like a heavy drinker. Oh, okay. According to Stephen, his mom could be abusive at times. In the podcast, he states, quote, she was abusive. There were times when she would flip out and take it out on us. That's kind of one of the reasons why CPS took us away. Plus my dad, my stepdad, he was a drinker. So he would always get in trouble for drinking too. So he'd always get arrested. They had that on him too. Where do they reside or? So they live in California. Oh, okay. He also stated, quote, she did spank us with belts. She hit us with like switches, twigs, almost anything she could grab. Steven also described one incident in particular where he caught his mom cutting her own arm in her bedroom and she quickly closed the door to kind of hide it. Wow. However, despite all of this of his mother, Steven also said, quote, she loved us even though she had her issues, but she loved us. She loved everybody in the family. Following the removal of her children by CPS, Lynn fell into a very deep depression and attempted suicide by swallowing a large quantity of pills. Following her suicide attempt, Lynn decided to legally give up her rights to her children as she felt the state could find them better homes than she could provide at that time. According to her family, this was an agonizing decision for her, but she wanted to do what was best for her children and she didn't believe she could provide them with a stable enough home at that point in her life, which I respect that. I think clearly she was going through some mental health issues and I respect the fact that she recognized that she wasn't in a place to give her kids the parenting that they needed at that time. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know specifically the laws or rules, but I guess as long as she maintained parental rights over them, I think they could only stay in probably foster care, right? As opposed to being adopted possibly by a good family or something, correct? Right. That makes sense. Okay. That's why she decided to give up her parental rights because she knew at that point they could be adopted out. Right. It was also at this time that she divorced her first husband, Don. Despite the divorce, Don and Lynn stayed friends, and Don was still a prominent father figure in Stephen's life, so the oldest son. 
Okay. Don also stayed close to Lynn's family throughout his life. He eventually went on to remarry and he had three more biological children, but he was always close to Lynn's family, like till he died. Right. Okay. Following her suicide attempt, Lynn checked herself into a mental health institution for a short time and began working on repairing her mental health. Her youngest children were eventually adopted out to other families. However, unfortunately, her oldest son, Stephen, because he was 12 at the time, spent the remainder of his childhood being shuffled between foster care families and group homes. Wow, that sucks. So after a couple of years, Lynn had turned her life around. She'd stopped cutting herself. She found a good job at a steel plant where she worked assembling airplane parts. She remained close with her family during this time. She was also able at this point to have visitation with her oldest son, Stephen, and some of the other children as well. Okay. It was during this time that Lynn met a former Navy soldier named Phil Lemke. Phil was married when he met Lynn but he uh, failed to mention his marriage to Lynn initially. So basically they're <laughs> carrying on this affair and she didn't realize he was married. Right, okay. Eventually, Phil left his fourth wife and married Lynn, who would become his fifth wife. Wow, okay. So, seems like a real winner already. <laughs> the couple moved into a small apartment in El Cajon, California, and they began their life together. So, in 1989, at this point, Stephen, her son, is 16 years old. Okay. Lynn had begun working to repair her relationship with her son. She'd been having visitation with him and some of her other children, like we talked about, right. and she hoped to eventually regain custody of Stephen. She obviously couldn't regain custody of the other kids because they'd been adopted out. Right. However, her new husband made it clear he did not like children. And he was unsupportive of Lynn's decision to repair her and her son's relationship. He wow. told Lynn that he did not want her son to come and live in their home. Yep, nice guy. Yeah, nice, real nice guy. Obviously, that became a huge issue within the couple's marriage. On October 4th, 1989, Lynn lied to Phil, her husband, and she right. told him that she was going to work. However, instead, she went gambling in Laughlin with her little brother, Kevin. Kevin and Lynn, they took a bus to the casino and on the long bus ride, they had an in-depth conversation about Lynn's marriage to Philip. Lynn expressed to her brother that she was extremely unhappy. She told Kevin that she planned to go home that night and ask Phil for a divorce. Oh, wow. Okay. Kevin claims that Lynn did not appear sad, just simply determined to end the marriage. She told Kevin that she felt Phil had changed since they'd gotten married and felt that he was lazy because he hadn't been working for some time and she was the only one supporting them financially. She also confessed to Kevin that Phil had a bad temper and she was nervous to confront him. She had confided in Kevin and other family members in the past that Kevin had hit her. That Phil had hit her. Right. Right, okay. She confessed that she was still in love with a former boyfriend and hoped to rekindle that relationship after breaking things off with Phil. Upon hearing all of this, Kevin was obviously concerned, so he tried to convince Lynn to let him spend the night at her house to make sure, you know, everything went well, but Lynn declined. After their gambling outing, uh, Lynn and Kevin went back to their mother's house where Lynn cooked her family dinner, and then she left and went to go home to confront Phil. Okay. So after returning home, Lynn made a phone call to a close childhood friend whose name was Raymond. Of the phone call, he stated this in the podcast. He said, quote, Lynn called me up one night. She told me that she needed to get out of the house because her husband wanted to kill her. And by the time I got out there the next day, well, according to the police, she'd already committed suicide. She was shot and supposedly killed herself. Approximately an hour and a half after Lynn had left her mother's house, Lynn's younger brother, Kevin, received a phone call and was told that his older sister, Lynn, had died by suicide. Oh, boy. Okay. So this is what occurred according to the police in the autopsy report. Okay. At approximately 8 p.m. on October 4th, 1989, Phil Lemke arrived home to his apartment from work. When he arrived, he later claimed that his wife was in a severe state of depression. After arriving home, Lynn gave Phil a three-page letter describing how unhappy she was in the marriage. In the letter... Lynn requested a divorce. After reading the letter and having a brief argument with Lynn, Phil went into the bathroom to take a shower. After showering for about 20 minutes, Phil came out of the bathroom and looked around for Lynn. He found Lynn laying behind the guest bedroom door. Initially, Phil thought Lynn was joking around, so Phil reached down, grabbed Lynn by the arm, and later he would claim that he felt a faint pulse at that point through her arm. After lifting her up, he saw the blood, but at first thought it was ketchup. After a few moments, Phil realized it was in fact real blood. At that point, Phil noticed a gun lying on the floor near Lynn. He picked up the weapon and smelled it to see if it had actually been fired. Upon smelling gunpowder, 
Phil went to the phone and called 911. At 8.33 p.m., a 911 dispatcher answered Phil's call. At 8.40 p.m., the El Cajon police received a radio call requesting their assistance on the scene of a suicide where the victim had a gunshot wound to the chest. Officer Miller, who wrote the police report, arrived on the scene with two other officers. When police arrived, they witnessed Phil standing outside of the apartment's front door. Phil immediately informed them that his wife had shot herself. He told them that she had given him a three-page letter which spoke about committing suicide, which was in a bedroom dresser drawer. He also informed the officers that Lynn had attempted suicide once in the past as well. At that point, the officers entered the bedroom and found Lynn. She was laying on her back with her legs crossed and her head within the bedroom's doorway. It was evident to the officers that Lynn was not breathing and had no pulse. The police began administering CPR until paramedics arrived. Paramedics arrived at the apartment at 8.46 p.m., six minutes after the police had first received their call. The paramedics took over CPR, and it was then decided that Lynn should be moved into the living room of the apartment so that the paramedics could better perform life-saving measures on Lynn. At 8.43 p.m., so this is only three minutes after police received the call from dispatch, a life flight helicopter was ordered for Lynn. It was decided that the helicopter would land in a schoolyard, which was located about four Four minutes from the apartment building as there was no place for it to land directly outside of their apartment building. At 8.49 p.m., it was noted in the report that the life flight helicopter was on its way. However, it is then noted that it arrived at 8.47 p.m., so discrepancy. When Lynn arrived to the helicopter, she was unfortunately pronounced dead at 9.02 p.m., and she was only 34 years old. Meanwhile, police began investigating the scene. They found one bullet hole within the apartment's bedroom. It was located four feet above the floor in the back of the bedroom door. The bullet exited the door and then went into the adjacent wall outside of the bedroom, and it entered the wall at about eight feet above the floor, so just below the ceiling. After determining the trajectory of the bullet, the detective concluded that Lynn had been on her knees with her back to the bedroom door. She had then placed the gun against the center of her chest and pulled the trigger. When asked, Phil claimed he had not heard the shot because he was in the shower at the time. Police noted that there was a wet bath towel in the bathroom and a pair of men's underwear had been left on the floor. The police also went and spoke to neighbors. Many claimed that they'd heard one gunshot. Upon examining Lynn's injury, there were burn marks around the point of entry, which proved Lynn had been shot at close range. Mm -hmm. However, the burn marks were found on the clothing she was wearing, and there was no burn marks or gun impressions found on her actual skin. There was also no stippling from the weapon. The police then located the three-page letter Phil had told them about in the dresser drawer. Good. It was located in a dresser in, a, in the spare bedroom where Lynn had been shot. Upon reading the letter, police did not feel that there was any direct indication of suicide in the letter. They also noted that the letter had no signature. However, based on what was said in the letter, the police stated it was obvious that the writer had indeed been very depressed. So here is what the letter says. Okay. Phil, it has been a long time, but I guess it's easy to forget. But if you still have the list I wrote you before we got together, then I suggest you read it again. I have lost my love for you, Philip, and I've been trying to figure out what to give you for your birthday. So the only thing I've been able to come up with is a divorce. Why? Will you make sure that everyone I try to make friends with see or hear your negative attitude whenever they are around? And face it, Phil, you can't support me. You can't keep me happy the way you promised. I have to work when you promised I wouldn't. When is the last time you brought me some flowers home? Or anything for that matter? just because you wanted to. In case you haven't figured it out yet, I don't have to be at my grandmother's house from Friday at 8 p.m. to Monday at 8 a.m. Mom really only needs me there on Saturdays and maybe a few hours on Sundays. But God, it is a relief to get away from you. It's true. I have back problems and the bed is hard to sleep in, but at least one of the three times I'm not in bed with you, it's just because I can't stand you anymore. Oh, sure, the move to a bigger apartment made me feel a little better but now it's made me feel a whole lot worse because of your attitude. I know it's hard to find a job and I do sympathize with you there, but at the same time, you should have been thinking and prepared for something like this before you ever asked me to marry you. And you really asked for that birthday present I mentioned earlier when you told me to not give my notice at work. Sorry, buddy, but I support no man. And no man was capitalized and underlined in the letter. Okay. I gave up my son for you. I went to work for you, not me, you. I tried to keep house for you. I try to cook for you. 
I just can't keep going on this way. When we were in number 19, I moved the TV to the bedroom so that you could relax and be lazy, whatever the case may be. I was going to buy a small TV for the bedroom here, but as long as I have to pay bills, I can't do that. By the way, that would have been your birthday present. I know you try, but I guess either you don't try hard enough or you just can't be the person that you said you'd be when you first asked me to marry you. If you can't be, it's not your fault. It's just the way it is and we have to part to keep me happy or at least keep me from being miserable. I want to be taken care of the way my grandfather took care of my grandmother. I know the cost of living has gone up since then, but believe me, my grandfather was not making $4 an hour when he first started. If you want to talk, we'll talk. But the first time you number one, raise your voice or number two, start cursing or number three, say things like never mind or you don't understand or anything to confuse the talk or upset me, you will be even closer to that divorce. So that's the letter. Yeah, there's no suicidal remarks or ideations there at all. Right. So next... The police turned to the gun, which had been found laying by Lynn's feet, along with a bag of ammunition, which was beside it. The gun was an RJ-31 special revolver handgun. Police photographed the evidence, then removed the spent shell casings from the weapon and placed all of the items into evidence. Following this, the detectives concluded that Lynn had, in fact, taken her own life. Police did take Phil into custody and interrogate him. However, Jill, who she's the one who started the podcast. Right. Jill has not received the transcripts of this interrogation. The only information that is known about the interrogation is what's in the police report. Okay. So following his questioning, Phil was released that same night. The coroner performed an autopsy and also concluded that Lynn had completed suicide. He concluded that the bullet entered the left side of Lynn's chest to the left of her heart. The bullet had a left to right trajectory. It entered through the second and third rib on the outer part of her sternum. It punctured the left lobe of her lung. The bullet then traveled onward and punctured the arch of her aorta. So that's kind of the U-shaped valve that's on top of the heart. The bullet exited through her upper back towards the nape of her neck. There's no exit mark in her clothing, meaning that the bullet exited above the edge of her nightgown. Okay. The autopsy did note a dime-sized subgaleal hematoma on the right side of her head, which would have been caused by some sort of bumper hit to her head or possibly from her hair being pulled. Okay. In his report, the coroner claimed his findings of suicide were based on five things. On Lynn's letter, on her previous suicide attempts, on evidence collected at the scene, on her husband's statements, and on his findings during the autopsy. Okay. In the report, the coroner wrote, the descendant in a deliberate act of self-destruction purposely inflicted a fatal gunshot wound to her chest. Therefore, the mode of death is to be suicide. Following the autopsy, Lynn's husband had her body cremated. Lynn's mother organized a funeral and Phil was supposed to claim Lynn's ashes because he was her next of kin. So he was the only one who could claim them. Okay. And he was supposed to deliver them to the funeral home as the, the family already had a plot and everything for her. Okay. However, this never happened. Phil never showed up and Lynn's family was forced to go on with the service without Lynn's ashes. Phil withheld Lynn's ashes and refused to tell the family where they were located. Phil eventually died in 2002 without ever informing the family whether or not he had possession of the ashes or whether he had laid them to rest. Oh my goodness. Through her own investigation, Jill would later discover that Phil had in fact buried Lynn's ashes and had specifically requested that no grave marker be placed on her grave. So we'll talk more about how Jill kind of found the grave and where she was located. But yeah, he had Lynn's ashes buried, but specifically requested in the paperwork that no grave marker ever be put on her grave. Okay. You know, hearing this story, there's already a a lot of red flags for me. So I'm going to go through point by point and we'll discuss them. Some of them are brought up by Jill in her podcast. Some are just like my own kind of questions, but I'm interested to hear your take as an actual investigator. So We'll see what you have to say about all these things. All right. Okay. So my first thought upon hearing that Phil had called 911 was, I want to hear the call. Sure. However, in the podcast, Jill explains that she requested the 911 recording as it, you know, should be public record because it's not a criminal investigation. Right. But the police won't release it. And we'll get more into that in a little bit, but basically they won't give it to her. Okay. And there's kind of multiple things that they won't give her access to. Okay. We have no transcript of the call or a recording. Like we have, so who knows how that went. This is okay. But do we know, does it exist or do they just not have it to provide? Well, we're not really sure because the police haven't been very forthcoming. Okay. Well, that's just so 
for a little bit of context, like my department, everything is recorded. However, it's only maintained if it's requested. And I'm not sure of the duration of like how long you can make the request. I know for the actual radio communications, I think is 60 days. And I think for 911, for like the actual phone conversations, I think is up to six months. And then after that, I don't think they can be, I'm not hundred percent, but I think once, you know, if they're not requested within that time frame, I think they're, you know, they're like disposed uh, of. Yeah. They're yeah recorded over or or, or whatever. Yeah, um, well, and and this is also in 1989 too. So right. So I'm, yeah, you right. know, I'm sure things were different, but now everything's like digitalized. But back then, you know, right. it was like literal tapes. Right. I mean, on, on our investigations, we generally only and I, and I don't deal with like suicides because I you know I deal in the traffic aspect of it, but only on criminal cases do we pull the tapes and stuff like that. You know, ones that we think are going to go to trial or where there's you know a subject or some type of crime. So again, not knowing their procedures, and this is just off my experience and, and where I work, I would think that they would at least like now we have the ability to listen to the call before we actually request it. Like we can actually call the shift commander and, you know, hear it like right after it happened. So lots changed since 1989. So, um, right. So, but you're saying there's a, a big possibility that the tape doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. If it wasn't recorded at that time or requested to be recorded, I don't know what their recording capabilities were back then or what their policies or procedures were on maintaining evidence. And then once this was deemed a suicide, if not a crime, then, you know, it falls into a different categories. So naturally rules of evidence and stuff, you know, change on that. So. So my next thing that I think is not necessarily odd in that I think the police were trying to cover anything up purposely, but kind of just carelessness mm -hmm. that the timeline, according to the police report is all fucked up. I was going to bring that up too, but I'll, I'll hear what you have to say first. So according to the police report, the paramedics arrived at 846. And yet the police report also states that a life flight was ordered at 843. So how was a light flight ordered before the paramedics even arrived on the scene? Okay, so to explain that part is sometimes if they know the call comes in already of a person shot or of a gunshot wound, they probably already start up the, the life flight, the chopper, depending on where it's coming from and the distance it has to travel to try to get that. And it's easier to cancel it in flight if they don't need it, like if they get on scene and the person's already expired, or if they get on scene and like, yeah, we need to get them to the hospital, the, the chopper's already in the air en route. So Okay, that, so that's pretty normal. Yeah, it, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So my other thing is there's also the fact that at one point in the report, it states that they called to see where the helicopter was at 8.49 p.m. And then later it states that the, the helicopter arrived at 8.47 p.m. This is just my guess at this and that we're talking 1989 as everything is digital now and everything's like you know run by computers and stuff the timelines are more exact now back then and i don't know what system they were on but i know back here in my department they used they called them blue cards and essentially the dispatchers were required or tasked with writing everything down for the call you know every time somebody requested something or and i'm not sure how digitized or computerized they were back in that time so it could have been can be human error where just the times were messed up. It could be the translation from the dispatcher to the officer to note it in his report. He could have made the mistake. It's not like where you can actually, now we just get a printout and it tells us everything that as it was logged into there still can be errors made, but as it's called out and the dispatcher enters it into the computer, it's automatically time stamped. We call it the CAD because it's a computer report and the dispatcher can print it and we can see everybody that was on the call, what time they did what, as long as they announced it on the radio and she logged it into the computer. So yeah, so you're um, saying that back then it would have been a lot easier to make those errors than it would be like today. I Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other thing that I think that stuck out to me right away when I was hearing this is I think it's really odd that the husband, instead of being inside with his wife, who's dying on the floor, he's outside when the police arrive. Yeah, that's a little odd, but you know, everybody reacts to death differently. So I, you know, I'm not going to say one way or another that he should have been in there with her or, you know, I've, I've given next of kin notifications and the parents or whoever, the family members are very calm. And then I've had them where they've gone running up and down the street, screaming bloody murder. You know, that that's just something that you have to make a mental note of it when you're investigating it, but it's not really something that you can say, oh, well, he's, he should have been in there, you know, tending to her. Well, who's to say like people don't, whether it's your loved one or not, some people really don't react well to people that are dead or severely injured or, you know, so I'm, I won't really say to, uh, yes, is it is it weird? Knowing myself, I wouldn't have been standing outside. I would have been trying to do something, but that's me. Yeah. So first of all, the letter to me isn't a suicide letter at all. 
I'm sorry if why why even bring up a divorce if you're planning to kill yourself you know what I'm saying right and even I think there's a spot in there where they discuss that they were depressed or that you know they were unhappy and stuff like that that's expressing a feeling of the situation you're in not that oh my god I feel terrible I'm going to kill myself this is like I want a divorce because things are bad you're not doing what you said you would do so I want to divorce like one point she even says like I think we should part because I don't want to be miserable anymore and I want to be happy so right. to me that says well clearly she sees an exit to this problem like it's not like she's suicidal like oh there's no way out I need to like Correct, die right. she doesn't feel there's no way out she sees that there can be happiness and part of that is getting away from him right so. the letter though I will say like it really made me like Wood because how she tells him like she basically is like, bitch, you just make me unhappy. Like, I can't even sleep in bed next to you. Like, ew. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's very, like, straightforward in the letter. Like, very, like, I'm not in love with you. I want out. Like, bye. Which, not, you know, not knowing their, their history so much, but I know that she did verbalize to other family members that he did get violent with her. And for a person to be a victim of spousal abuse like that, that's a pretty big step and a pretty strong declaration that she's able to put that into writing and either give it to him or leave it for him to read and then go confront it. So that's, that's a huge thing in itself as well. Like, cause most, most victims of domestic violence, they don't have the courage to, to do that. And, you know, they, that's why they end up staying in those relationships. And, and some of them, unfortunately, you know, end up being killed or whatever, but you know, it takes a very, very strong person and it's gotta be very, very bad for them to make that decision of, you know what, it's worse if I stay as opposed to going through this argument, this fight, whatever, but getting out of it. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's speaks to her, you know, where she was, I guess, physically and emotionally at that moment that, that her relationship was so bad that I'm going to make this step. I'm going to, you know, take this step to better myself or better my life. And, you know, maybe that came with the mental health, figuring out, you know, re rebuilding her mental health. And when she spent time in the hospital or therapy, whatever, that probably played a big part of it and shows that you can overcome, you know, these, I don't want to say demons, but, you know, these issues that people do encounter, whether it's, you know, mental illness or, you know, physical illness or whatever, but or psychological, you know, abuse and stuff like that. Once you make that determination to do it, it seems like she was at that point and she verbalized it on paper and it wasn't just a, a statement. It was actually written down, which takes even more cojones. And I thought it was weird because like in the police report, the police say like, oh, it's clear from this letter, like how depressed she was. And I'm like, really? Because it's not clear to me. I don't feel like it comes across as depressed at all. Like, don't get me wrong, angry, yes. Like annoyed, like, you know, right. angry, annoyed, like fed up. But I don't get a depressed vibe. It's more like, I want out. I'm letting you know I want out. Like, peace. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't take the letter that way. I don't like one thing I've never done in my career is I try not to ever speak of what other officers do, especially when I'm not in that situation or, or experienced whatever that call or, or whatever was. So I'm not going to, you know, say that their belief that that letter was, you know, sounded depressing to them. That's them. The way you read it to me and what I heard, did it sound like somebody's upset? Yes. It sounded like somebody was miserable in the relationship that they were in and, and the way that their life was at that time, but it no way indicated to me that they were suicidal or that they wanted to end their life. They wanted to change the relationship and situation they were in to get to that happy place that they verbalized. And a person who's suicidal does not see a happy place ever anyway. Right. You know, right. to them, it's end of the world. It's like the only solution is death. And for her to say that if I stay in this relationship, I'll always be miserable. You know, her brain's working correctly saying, I need to get away from you so that I can be happy again. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, that's how I, I took it as well. I don't see that letter as, as suicidal in any fashion or even depressive. It sounds like somebody who's gained their voice and strength and is attempting to make a change. That's how I took it too. Well, and the other thing that's weird, so the letter itself was written on three pages, right? We've heard like in the report, a three-page letter, three-page letter. But in actuality, only one complete page was filled up. And then okay. the other two pages were almost like half pages, which is okay. odd. To me, that kind of seems like, was this really like a letter that she planned to give him? Or was, to me, that kind of sounds like she was just almost like trying to figure out her own emotions and kind of jotting down her feelings. Like, do you know what I mean? Oh, maybe you mean like maybe it wasn't a letter for him. It was just her getting her thought process and what what she wanted I yeah, guess, like, to have that conversation. It, like, uh, yeah. Well, and then this is the other interesting thing that I think kind of supports that is according to the police report, when they first arrived, Phil claimed that there was a quote unquote suicide letter that was given to him by Lynn. Right. And he said, oh, it's in the dresser drawer. Right. So first of all, I think it's odd that he would 
assume that's a suicide letter when they're having read it there's nothing about that but then b later during his formal interview because remember i said they took him back to the station in question right Right. So we don't have, like I said, we don't have the full transcript of that interview. We only have like what the officer put in his own report. Right. But he claimed that Lynn had discussed getting a divorce with him when he arrived home and that it wasn't necessarily a letter to him like that she'd had written out already and given to him like when she came home. So now his story is kind of changing, right? Because at first he said, oh, she gave me this letter. It's a suicide letter. Then once he's in the interview room talking to the police, this is what the police put in their report that he stated that as they had been talking, which just doesn't really make sense to me, but as they had been talking and kind of arguing, Lynn had been making these notes like as they were talking I guess like trying to organize her thoughts and then would say it to him Mm, no which that makes zero sense because it's like who does that like in the middle of a fight you're going to be like oh hold on one second let me write this down and then read it to you yeah you're not no Uh, all right so this this is for the letter I mean does the family do they have the letter or do they have copies of the letter or Jill does because she she reads it on the podcast so she did all right so this is this is the first thing I would say I would reread the letter what does the first that first page take away the other two pages does that letter read as like a complete statement because I asked the secondary it sounds like when you were reading it I was thinking it sounded almost like a grocery list or not a grocery list but if somebody recounting what was being told or what was told to them like almost like an if he was writing you told me that I didn't I couldn't get a job and that I promised that I would take care of you like and again I'm not, I don't want to say that he wrote the letter but there would be a couple things checking the handwriting naturally type of paper that it's on if it's the same because we're going to assume that she wrote it at that exact moment or altogether the handwriting the same and and how does the the first page read like what does it say and is it would somebody could think that that's the complete letter and then the other two pages were additional you know something like that like again not that it's a huge flag, but something that that I would look at myself as as an investigator, because you want the totality of that piece of evidence to make sense. And if it doesn't, then you either got to exclude it or at least have it answered. Like, why? Why is it in this, you know, form or fashion? Why is it written in three different times? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, there's some the, discrepancy. The other thing that I found odd about the letter, too, is that they end up finding it in the dresser drawer of the guest room. The guest room, which right? is where she committed suicide, supposedly. Right. So suppose you remember how in the letter she talks about like, oh, I don't always sleep with you. She would sleep in that guest room a lot. So it's interesting to me that the letter was found in, not in his room, right? but in the room she stayed in, like in the dresser drawer. Like, so what? She gave you this letter and then took it back and put it in her dresser drawer before shooting herself. Like, it just makes, like, it's not clear how right. the letter got there. So that, that, and right. And that's, that's more consistent with her writing down her thoughts right? in her own time, you know, before she's going to sleep or when she wakes up in the morning. I mean, I don't know, but if you were handed this letter by your wife claiming that she wants a divorce, would would you put it away in the drawer, like not the bedroom that you sleep in, your dresser or your nightstand, but the one that she sleeps in and then to go take a shower? Like, Yeah, that's what I mean. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, well, and that's the other thing that also doesn't make sense is the shower thing, because it's like it kind of honestly reminded me of the Elise Matsunaga case we did where they were claiming like, oh, he in the middle of an argument, he went to go get pizza. It's like. In the middle of an argument with your wife where she's literally asking for a divorce, you're going to be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go take a shower real quick. Like that seems strange to me. And I'm not saying like, I mean, everyone reacts differently to things like maybe, you know, playing devil's advocate, maybe he needed like some time to himself to like, you know, process his like thoughts and feelings or whatever. But I just personally know that I wouldn't react that way. If Logan came to me and was like, gave me this letter, was like, I want a divorce. The last thing on my mind would be a shower. Uh, right, right. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask these questions. Tell me about the firearm again. It was a revolver. Do we know like specifically? Okay, so there is, a, there is stuff on the revolver. So we'll get to that. Okay. So, okay. So just before we get to that, it is a revolver. So it is a revolver. Yeah. If you're going to take a shower, if we're thinking now thinking worst case scenario, or that he's the suspect, you want to take a shower to get rid of evidence naturally. Right. Right. So 
Did they do, did they check him for gun? Like, okay, again, back in 1989, you know, we'd have the GSRs or the gun residue swabs where, you know, you swab the person's hands, you know, they don't always work, but you know, if you fired a gun and there's gun residue on your hand, which naturally a revolver is going to leave as it's fired because of the way that, you know, it, it expels the, the gunpowder and whatnot. So I would say that that's a little odd that he took a shower after a gunshot or during the gunshot. Like that's really the only way you're going to get rid of evidence or gunpowder powder or or whatever well i will tell you that the police did not do any gunpowder residue tests on on her or on him i would say that that's something that would i would want to look into now you know today again i can't let me ask you like now today like obviously like 89 was a long time ago but now today if this were to happen right now like the same exact circumstances in your department is that something that they would do automatically i'm going to say 99% yes they were going to do that just because of the circumstances of it that we you know crime scene will come out and they'll do the photographs like there's a full death investigation there so i i would think i will have to find out i, I will speak to somebody uh, an actual one of the actual homicide detectives to to know if that's part of the procedure or not but i would think that they would just so that we could exclude them as opposed to you know just say oh yeah it's a suicide and then you know two weeks later oh it's a murder and i'm interested to hear what you think as we go on because i think that there's a lot of evidence that they strangely did not collect which is but maybe it's normal you'll be able to tell me right so my other question is is it normal that there would be no burn marks on the skin right because like i said they found burn marks from the gun on her actual clothing that she was wearing but there's nothing on the skin and then there was also no stippling on the clothes or the skin all right stippling is the burn marks i don't know why they're calling it two different things because when the gun is fired all the discharge from the gunpowder and everything comes out the front of it It comes out of the barrel stippling is the actual the burns generally on skin you'll see like holes like the gunpowder it's powder each they're like flecks almost like or specks or like glitter yeah and they burn individually so that's why you get what's called stippling which is like a bunch of burn dots okay so, so you're saying that if there was burns on the clothing that is stippling well i think maybe the terminology is stippling when it's on the skin and it burns the skin as opposed to just burn marks on clothing i don't know i would have to research that a little bit more but essentially it's all the same right one was close enough to the body to the skin to clothing whatever you're going to have it's going to burn whatever it comes in contact whether it's you know like i said the clothing or skin i was taught that the stippling is the burning on the skin so maybe that's why they say there's burn marks on the clothing but no stippling on the skin because it was covered by you know whatever material that was now i would have to look at them she was wearing a well that's another kind of discrepancy in the police report is at one point they say she's wearing a blue nightgown and then on another point they say she was wearing a brown house coat so maybe the nightgown was under the house coat like i don't know but yeah, well, um, that's a, that's an easy. I mean, if they have if there's photographs, that's an well, easy. Spoiler alert: there are not. <laughs> okay. All Which right. I'll I'll get into that. That's on my list, but okay. there are not. Okay. There kind of are, but they're not. <laughs> okay. So Jill does talk about a study she kind of researched. Like she was curious, and I agree with her at least as like a layman. To me, like it is an odd way to kill yourself in terms of shooting yourself in the chest versus like any other way. Like, I I don't feel like that's a common way to commit suicide. It's not, but it certainly does happen. So she actually did a lot of research and she came across this study. So the study is called Forensic Issues in Suicidal Single Gunshot Wounds to the Chest. So it's a whole study that's all about people who shoot themselves in the chest. Right. So because I have access to the Hollis Library at Harvard, I looked up this study myself because I was like, I want to read it myself and like see, right? So it's pretty fascinating. I'll save you guys all the gritty details because I know some of you are probably like, boring. But the article was published in the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology in 2012. Okay. It was written by a Stragina Vulgeco. So if anybody wants to look it up, but anyway, Jill gives a lot of detail on the study in the podcast because I do think it's important for this case. If you're interested in more information that I'm going to say, if you listen to the podcast, it's on there. I'm just going to give you like the bare details that like stuck out to me reading the study. So basically the study was conducted for a 20 year period. So that's a long time. The study itself, basically what they conclude, they looked at all of these victims over a 20 year period. What the study concludes is that it's highly unlikely for women to commit suicide by shooting themselves in the chest. I should say, A, it's unlikely motive 
suicide in general, but right, right. even more so for women. Right. Okay. And even when women do, or people in general do shoot themselves in the chest, it's even more unlikely for the bullet to travel upwards rather than downward. So typically when people shoot themselves in the chest, the bullet's trajectory goes down as opposed to up like Lynn's did. Okay. In fact, it is so rare that the study basically concludes that it's basically an anomaly for it to happen. It's incredibly rare. Really? Okay. For the bullet to travel A, upwards, but okay. also remember how hers traveled from left to right, that right. it's incredibly rare. Like out of everyone in their study, there was only one person who that happened to, one, over a 20-year period. Okay. So, I mean, that doesn't necessarily prove that it, it wasn't suicide, but I think it does call into question, like, it is odd it is odd, yeah. But I would also point this out. We said that the bullet hole was found in the door like at four feet high. Right. right? Yes. And then the exit or where it went into the wall was almost near the ceiling. So we definitely have that upward trajectory. If we're going to say that he was the shooter or he was shooting her, he would have to been on the ground. Like right. Lying down or, or lower than four feet. So. Right. He would have had to be below her. Right. Which. I mean, I'm trying to think of us. Or I guess, you know what, though? Necessarily not so. Because let's say they're on the floor, like struggling, right? On their knees, like on the floor. And he's like grabbing her. If he has the gun, like kind of up into her rib cage and fires it, it would go at an upward angle. You see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Not necessarily if he's pointing the gun downward. Yeah, but I'm saying if, if like he's pointing it up into her rib cage, it would go out that way. Well, yeah, if he's like got it jammed up, of course. Right. 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 So I'm saying either way, it's possible. Like, is it possible? Oh, of course, of course, it's it's a plausible. It's plausible that she shot herself that way. It's plausible that he shot her that way. But I'm trying to think of the scenario that did. Okay, well, I'd have to ask: Did he have any type of injuries, like any type of scratches? Not, not that's noted in the report. But they okay. also didn't like you know examine his body. So right, you know, so that's something that I guess you know we could you know I would say look at where they were they struggling over the gun on the floor maybe he had it out and she was like trying to get him to to not shoot her like but then you would have some type of i would say you would have to look at her body as well well here's the other interesting thing so let me throw this at you okay. so i looked into the the type of hematoma that she had in oh, her right. thing yeah. so it's only a dime it was only about like an inch wide it was only about the size of like a dime right and where was it located on her head? on her on her the i believe it's the right side of her head so okay. looking into that type of hematoma she talks about it on the podcast but i also googled it myself because i was like you know i want to see about it right. so where because i've never even heard of that type before so i was like there must be something like quote unquote special like about right. that so right. basically where it's most common where you see it the most is you know how when babies are having difficulty being birthed they'll like suction their heads out of right so basically the hematoma forms when the scalp is pulled so violently from the skull that it okay. like forms like a basically a bruise right like right. okay right but typically speaking that doesn't it's not as common for that to happen just by like hitting your head right that's a different type of kind of hematoma right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's from like pulling, right? Pulling, right. Okay. So in the podcast, Jill speculates that it's from hair pulling, right? Because okay. obviously he didn't have like a suction cup on her head or she didn't no. put a suction cup on her own head. You know what I'm right. saying? So, I mean, if that's the case, which who knows, you know what I mean? It's a very small spot. Like I was going to say, you said it's the size of a dime. Yeah. Okay. And just looking at everything or, you know, playing both sides of it. If he's pulling her hair, if that's, you know, if that's where, where we're going to like put that out there, I would think he would have a handful of hair and it would be more than just a little dime size bruise. Yeah, I right? agree with that. Or, and because it is a pulling and not a blunt force type of strike, that leaves out that he struck her on the head first or something. It also, I was thinking when you first told me about it, that maybe it was caused from her falling back or, you know, falling after the gunshot and hitting her head, but knowing the type of injury that it is, that it's caused from, from an external or like, you know, the suction, I guess right. the suction force as opposed to a, a blunt, like an impact. I mean, you kind of, you have to look at it. It's there. It's odd. But well, I would... when Jill spoke to the, she spoke to a coroner right. about it. And he basically suggested that it's possible. No one's going to know, obviously. Like, right, right. But he suggested it's possible like while they were like loading her up whatever like her hair gets caught like maybe it was pulled maybe like her head somehow got bonked or like 
you know, okay, within so that's the a, process of like loading her onto like, okay, the so that's interesting. Or, so I would ask, because I don't know, is that injury, can that injury be sustained after death, like postmortem? That's where the, the question really lies is when was she dead? Because according to the husband, when he first supposedly thought she was playing dead and like joking around, he up. went to lift, you know, lift her arm or whatever. And he pulse. said, I felt a faint pulse. So all we know is that she was pronounced dead at the helicopter once they got there but was she still alive in some capacity before that it's hard to know right of course so this is the other fact that i find odd personally and she also mentions in the podcast the fact that phil claims he did not hear the shot because neighbors you know they're in an apartment building so it was a two-story apartment building so you know they're all on top of each other neighbors the cops interviewed neighbors they claimed yeah i heard a shot Mind you, Jill actually goes to the apartment that it happened in. She wanted to look at it and see the layout. So once she's in there, she realizes that the shower itself, it's between the two bedrooms. So the shower itself shares a wall with the bedroom that it like the actual shower, not just the bathroom, the shower. So essentially there's only a wall in between the shower and the bedroom where it happened. Right. And he's claiming, oh, no, I didn't hear it. But neighbors on either side who were farther away heard it. That's odd. And then on top of that, she, you know, did the math while she was there that the way the apartment was laid out, her body was found less than 10 feet from the bathroom, right? Because it shared a wall. So it's like, Right. Yeah. That's close. Yeah. I mean, even if it's on the opposite side of the room, how big's a room? This was one of the biggest red flags for me. Like we said, trajectory, that could be either or to me, even him standing outside of the apartment, like that's a red flag to me. But like you said, like different people react different. How do you know? But the fact that he claims he didn't hear a gunshot that to me is strange. I have fired weapons myself. Obviously, I know you've heard way more than I have, but I've fired weapons myself. I know how loud they are. I fired a revolver. I know how loud it is. Yeah. The fact that you're telling me that just from the sh- the shower that you couldn't hear it, to me, that's bullshit. There's no way. Yes, I agree with what you're saying, but playing devil's advocate, I will say when it comes to sound, the acoustics of the room, was he under the water at the time? Was it, There's so many arguments, and I'm not saying that they're plausible or that, you know, that's it's what happened, but I'm thinking of like if I'm a defense attorney. Right. And to, 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 to disprove that. What can we say that a person saw or didn't see or heard or didn't hear? He was supposedly in a shower. Water was running. He was shampooing his head let's say there was soap in his ears there was you know the position of where the gun was fired the the velocity and the sound traveled away from where the bathroom was so naturally the person on the other side of the door is going to hear it better than and i'm not saying that this is all like these are factual you know instances but i'm just saying if if, that would be the argument yeah i mean so and unfortunately the only people that know what happened is lynn and if he did kill her him and they're both dead now so unfortunately you know we we're never really going to know but yes do I think it's odd that he says he didn't hear the gunshot? Absolutely. When you're literally a wall away and whether it's cinder block or it's it's drywall and wood studs or whatever. Yes, it's going to muffle the sound somewhat. But when you have neighbors, like you said, in other apartments and other locations who are farther away, farther away that heard it. Let me put it so. to you this way. As an investigator, mm-hmm. if you were at this scene and hear that, what's your first thought? I, uh, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah, you'd be like, nah, that doesn't sound right. right. So the police, they surmise in their report that she obviously had to be down on the floor on her knees to get that trajectory, right? If she shot herself. Okay. So in the report, mind you, they didn't didn't take photos of her body. So we don't, we don't have visual evidence of how it was found. But in the report, what Officer Miller claims when he comes in, he sees that she is laying flat on her back with her legs crossed in front of her. Okay. When she's found. So to me, there's no indication in the report that the body was moved besides what Phil says that he grabbed her arm or whatever. He grabbed her arm and did what? Did he, he move her, her arm and like basically slightly lifted her to like, and then saw the blood and was like, oh shit. Let's think like, okay, if you shoot yourself on your knees, there's only two options of how you're going to fall, right? Either forward or backward, right? But your knees right. are still under you. They're not going to like fly out forward. Correct. Yeah. So to me, the only way that she got laid flat is if it would take somebody a lot of force to literally lift her up. Think about that. They, No matter how small she is, they'd have to lift her up and like, it would be a struggle to get her legs flat. Like that's not just right. like an, oh, I lift you by the arm and oh shit, like there's blood. To get your legs out flat and crossed in front of you, like that would mean you'd have to like lift her up up. Right. Agreed. Even if she was on her knees with her legs crossed, like 
you know, on her knees with her ankles crossed, she's shot. If she falls forward, then naturally she's going to be face down. If right. she falls backwards, then her legs are going to be tucked under underneath her. her. So, right. So and I agree even if this. she were to fall to the side or whatever, either way, her legs are still going to be underneath, like folded. Right. I agree with you. So that's odd. It is very odd. And the fact that they didn't photograph it and that the officer saying that he found her that way when he first walked into the room and doesn't question it a little bit more. I go through my scenes 10 times before I do my final photos and, and mark evidence. And if that's true, that her legs were yes. like that when the officer walked in. Yeah, she was she was moved prior to according to how they said that she was in the position she was in and shot and the way they found her. She was moved. Right. The only thing we know for certain that she was shot, where she was shot, the trajectory of the bullet, because those are those are indisputable facts. Right. It's just science. That, that's it. That's all we know. We don't know who pulled the trigger. We don't know what happened to the body after. We know what should happen to the body if you put her in different positions. But they're saying that she had to be on her knees, facing a certain way because of the wounds. Right. Those are all established because of science, because of evidence. And evidence never lies. Everything else to me is is very odd and needs more explanation it needs a lot more explanation right yeah i agree with you okay so here's another issue so the gun that was used it's a very complicated weapon to use right so the gun i guess it had i'm not you'll probably know more than me because you're more familiar with guns but the gun apparently had a special pin that needed to be unscrewed and pulled back in order to load it the pride to take the cylinder out is probably a type of revolver where the cylinder comes out totally as opposed to like a hinged cylinder. And then you would unscrew it, pull the pin out of like the center of it. The, the cylinder itself that holds the bullets detaches from the gun completely. Right. What's odd about that is Lynn was not a gun person. Like she wasn't one that fired weapons. Her family says that she was actually scared of guns. Her own son says that he wasn't even allowed to have toy guns in the house because she was like anti like, you know, weapon. Right. So to me, that's a red flag because whose gun is it? The husband's. Okay. So it is his. He's not denying that it's his. Right. So Lynn, how would she A, know how to load the gun? Right. Because that's, I wouldn't know how to do that shit. And I've actually fired weapons before, but I wouldn't know how to do that because there's only one bullet found in the gun, right? There's one cartridge. So how would she know how to place the bullet in the correct cylinder to guarantee that it would actually fire? Okay. So that's what I was going to ask you. Was the gun found loaded with one spent casing? Yes. No, but I'm saying, but there were other bullets in the gun. No, one spent casing. it It was one spent casing, nothing else. Right. There's a photo of that. That's one of the photos that's actually like taken. That's yeah. Your a revolver is very simple to shoot if it's already loaded, right? You just right, pull it. The, yeah. There's no, I mean, well, depending if it's single action, double action, you may have to pull the hammer back, whatever, but revolvers are the easiest weapons to shoot or handguns to shoot. So you just pull the trigger so that you can, she doesn't know how to shoot. All you need to do is pull the trigger if it's loaded. But the fact that there's only one round. Remember, there was a bag of ammunition found next to her too, implying that she loaded it. If she indeed committed suicide, she loaded that weapon. You're absolutely correct. You need to know how the weapon cycles or how the cylinder cycles, meaning which way does it turn? You would need to know that where to put that round for it to fire at that time, because some revolvers that you can put the the bullet right, even with the barrel. And when you go to pull the trigger, it cycles and it won't fire that. So you have to put it the one before it. So definitely the person needs to know how that specific gun that has to unscrew and the pin pulled out, you have to be very proficient at loading that gun to know all of those things. So yes, huge, huge, huge red flag there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so here's the another red flag. The bullet, because remember, it traveled into the opposing wall from the door, right? Right. right. It, was, it was never removed and never taken into evidence. <laughs> Wow. Okay. That's not good news, huh? We're, yeah, we're taking the bullet. We're going to cut the wall and at the least we're going to pry the, the casing or the, the projectile out. Worst case is we cut a big piece of the wall out and take it. Like if it's a murder scene, like a homicide, we're taking the whole goddamn wall. No, they didn't. It's still in there. Okay. So, okay. We're, we're to the photos now. Only three photos were taken. They were Polaroids at the time, you know, 1989. The only three photos that are listed as evidence. One is, remember, I already said that they took the cartridge out of the gun and then took a photo of the gun, the ammunition and the cartridge. Great. Okay. Second is they took a picture of the entry wound on Lynn and an, and a picture of the exit wound. Okay. So that's it. Those are the, those are the three photos. There's no photo of like her entire body on the floor. There's no photos of the bullet holes. There's no photos of blood stains. There's no photos of how the scene was found when they walked in. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, it's not done today. I don't think that 
was done then? Well, if we go to a suicide, we may or may not do photos. Generally not if you can see that it's a suicide, but there's so many questions to this. If I was the first responding officer or the investigator, personally, I would have just to cover my own base, like, because, you know, we, we kind of have a cover your ass. If you don't do something and you should have done it, then you can get in trouble for it. So naturally I always do my investigations hundred percent. They're the same, whether it's a criminal or not a criminal, it's just, I do it the same way so that I don't mess anything up. And it's just how I was taught and how I work. So as an investigator, if I was investigating this suicide, and I, you know, throwing quotes up in the air. To me, I've already just in this small discussion and not being on the scene and not seeing everything as it's unfolding in front of me, there's a lot of questions that will require a lot more investigation and more answers. And, and like once the scene is cleared, that's it. Even if you go back the next day, literally the first 48 is the most important of collecting evidence, trying to locate subjects, all that stuff. It's very, the most important time. So, and we're talking 30 plus years ago, if they didn't collect it, then. Yeah, you're not going to get it now you're not getting you're not getting it and the fact that now that he's passed away as well there's no re-interviewing him so i had to say it, it's just um the case wasn't compared to today's standards there was a lot of things that were not done that probably should have been done and again i'm not going to say that she was murdered based on you know these things that we're finding but there's a lot of questions that require answers that i feel the questions were, were not asked a and the answers were not obtained so and like i said just you and i discussing it and, and the information you're providing me i've we've already picked up i mean you not even an investigator have picked up and i'm sure the family has too which is why they have questions and stuff why certain things weren't done and, and again the only thing i can the only answer i can give is that it was another time you know it was a long time ago it was another department doesn't help the family because they want the you know but unfortunately that's the reality of it and i don't as an investigator in my cases i never want to go to a, a family or speak to somebody about a case and not have answers like right to me this investigation the way it would be performed today is way way different there would be a, a lot more more questions asked and you know more steps taken than than were than were so you know that's unfortunately we just I, I don't know like I can't say for sure but you know yes there's definitely a lot of questions also the police did not collect any of Phil's clothes including the towel and boxers that they made reference to on the bathroom floor but also even the clothes he was wearing prior at the time right which they should have because there could have been you know gun evidence or you know powder burn evidence or or not or you not, know what right. I mean Right, exactly. Like it would right. have excluded it if that's the case. Absolutely. But, but you I will never know. Right. But you would have had the answer one way or another. Right. I think that that's what ultimately the family wants is some, which they may never get. Like, even if they get these records, you know what I'm saying? They may never right. get that. But I'm saying I understand the need to want to know, like, of course, did she take her life or didn't she? Like, you know what I mean? Right. Another thing that we really didn't touch upon, which we've talked about in other podcasts, mental health. Mm -hmm. Back then, you know, mental health was kind of like if you had some type of issue, it either was not discussed, you were locked away in a hospital somewhere not to be, you know, seen or whatever. So the fact, I mean, maybe that played a key in it too, that she had a history of trying to commit suicide. She had been hospitalized. She had been, you know, maybe these things did kind of factor in how they progressed the investigation. Like, Oh, I definitely think so. And back then, you know, if somebody said that you were crazy or you, you committed suicide or tried to commit suicide, you were, you were crazy and that was it. Like there was no getting help unless you wanted to do it yourself or, you know, wasn't accepted or, or as, as we're trying to make it more acceptable today that mental health is normal. It you know, right. needs to be addressed. It needs to be open. You know, people shouldn't be ashamed. That well, they and, have. And, and one thing that Jill, she like starts off each episode with this, like she talks about how people who have a suicide attempt, there's a common misconception that they are always suicidal. Like for the rest of your life, you're always suicidal. Right. She's like, scientifically, that's not true, right? Like, yeah, right. you can be suicidal at one point in your life. You're feeling desperate and you feel like, like we talked about, there's no exit for you. Like you're exactly. in that moment suicidal, but you know, statistically and, and research wise, like that's not the case. Like people generally yeah. can have a suicide attempt and then go on to live beautiful, happy lives. Like it was just that one moment that they felt that Absolutely. way. Like it doesn't continue on forever necessarily. Right. It's a moment in your life where everything is you feels against you and you have nothing positive, nothing good. You know, people say, oh, if, if you try to commit suicide and you're not successful, then it's like a cry for help or whatever, which it is, definitely is. And I think we have to look at it as people don't have the ability always to solve their own problems. They need 
outside assistance. And sometimes it takes them hitting rock bottom. Like, you know, they say that with people that are addicted to drugs and stuff that they won't seek help or go to rehab until they themselves have hit rock bottom. The family can try a thousand times, but until they've hit their lowest point, they won't make the effort. The same thing with kind of like mental health, when you're kind of lost and you're in this life and you feel like there is no answer other than if I'm not here, I no longer have to deal with this pain or this sadness that I'm feeling. That's the only solution. That's when people attempt to do suicide or and sometimes, you know, sadly they're successful and, you know, sometimes they're not. And if they get the right help, you know, which is kind of there and it kind of isn't there, you know, people bounce back and they, you know, they, their lives get better. And like in this case, discussing that letter that she wrote or, you know, whether it was just ideas on a paper or the actual note she gave them saying, listen, I'm miserable with you. I know I need to get out of this so that I can be happy. She knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel, let's say like the, using right. that metaphor. So that's not somebody who's suicidal. That's somebody who sees the problem and probably through going into the hospital or having counseling or whatever, she figured out that, Hey, here's the problem. She identified it. I know that I need to do X, Y, and Z to not be there anymore. And she was exercising that. And, you know, that comes from mental health, from counseling and, and, you know, just having good family support. It sounds like her family that she had good relationship with them or was trying to build it back up. So I'm sure she had a pretty good support system at that time. Those are all things that are huge when it comes to, you know, depression and being suicidal and, and stuff like that. And, but when you have people that care about you and you can see past the problem and that there's potential to have good past it, I, you know, I think that's where she was. And I think that that note demonstrates that. Well, I think now is a good time. I wanted to, I was going to say this for the end, but I just wanted to give everybody the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Yes, absolutely. So if you ever need it, 800-273-8255. Excellent. I've gone to counseling in the past and it's helped me and used to be a very, for police work, it was a huge stigma and it kind of still is like we're getting out of it now, thank God. But, you know, uh, cops kill themselves at a very high rate and, you know, we have access to firearms all the time. There's one on our hip like daily. There's, you know, and we have as a society, as as humans, as you know, and this is this podcast is, you know, kind of international. It's okay to need help. It's okay to say, I can't handle what, you know, what's going on in my head or my situation. And just talk to somebody, make a phone call, whether it's a friend, whether it's a stranger, whether it's the hotline, but life is is precious and beautiful, regardless of where you're at. And we shouldn't be ashamed to, to say, hey, if you need to talk to somebody because you're not feeling good, then fucking A, just you know, reach out to somebody to say, Hey, I, you know, even if it's just to talk to, to release some emotions or whatever feelings, whatever, you know, you, you never know. And also in passing, you never know saying hello to somebody or saying, how are you? May, yeah, may, be kind to people. Be kind. It may save their life that day. They may be on the verge of wanting to, to put that plan in place. And the one person could be you that says hi and expresses even a momentary care about how they're doing may prevent them from doing it at least maybe you know a little bit but so I'm, I'm you know pretty big on mental health and it's we need to get away with it being bad because it's been so stigmatized in in the past we definitely need to you know accept it with care and, and open arms and that it's not a bad thing you know people can get better from it on a happy note yeah through her research on this case Jill came across a grave finding website. So I guess I've never heard of this, but she talks about it on the podcast in more detail, but people volunteer to basically like match graves with those that are buried in them. They basically upload photos of the grave sites to websites in case okay. like family or ancestors like are looking for them. Right. So these people came across Lynn's grave in 2018 and they uploaded it to their website. So thanks to them, Jill came across Get out their of here. Yeah, Jill came across their website, was actually able to locate her aunt's grave finally, because remember, Phil died oh. without telling the family. Right, right. Okay. So through the website, Jill discovered that she was actually buried at In... this cemetery by her husband. And it was she was only buried 14 days after he picked up her ashes. Okay. So through that is how she figured out because she could see the like documents he filled but out. There was there was no marker, right? No headstone, no nothing. Right. Just... So Okay. He'd requested that the cemetery leave her grave unmarked, like it's on the paperwork. Right. Wow, okay. So upon finding the information, Jill informed Lynn's brother, Kevin, right. and she yeah. also informed Lynn's son, Stephen. So they have both been to the grave. Awesome. They Did they put a marker? Debated originally whether they wanted to leave her there and put a marker or put her in the family cemetery. Oh, so okay. I think they've decided they're going to put her in the family cemetery. They're just trying to save up the money for the cost okay. because obviously it's expensive. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, they know where she's buried oh, and awesome. they're going to So still in that same town that they lived in El Tracone or wherever. Yeah, so supposedly it's okay. it's like it was only like 10 minutes down the road the whole time, but they okay. obviously didn't know. Right, of course, yeah. The other thing is when Jill spoke to the chief of police, he informed Jill that in order for her to get all the records pertaining to Lynn's case, she would have to formally sue the police department for them. Okay. So part of that process is getting a petition signed. Oh, okay. So if you guys can please log on and sign the petition, I've already signed it. You can find the petition and the links to Jill's podcast on www.suicidecrime.com. I'll also link the petition and Jill's podcast website in our show notes. So you can find it there too. Excellent. I'll also post it on in our Facebook group and on Instagram, but it, I did it already. It, t- it literally takes two seconds. As of August, 2021, Jill has filed a formal complaint against the El Cajon Police Department as a way to get these records. Okay. Her complaint will be investigated and then decided upon by an elected group of citizens. So I guess in El Cajon, that's how that process yeah, works. Like a, yeah, a citizen review panel or something like that. Right. So they'll decide whether the records should be released to the public or whether the withholding of Lynn's record are lawful and they don't have to release them. Okay. But they have a year to make that decision. So go on, sign the petition. We'll link it. Also, like I said, go on and listen to her podcast. It's When Suicide is Murder. It's on all the prominent podcasting apps. It's really good. She gives a lot more details than you know we could in this one episode. Right. So as always, follow us on our socials. We're at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod on Instagram. We're at CMTSU Pod on Twitter. Our Facebook group is Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast discussion group. Also, please email us case suggestions or questions to can't make this shit up pod at gmail.com. Or there is also a link in our Instagram bio where you can submit case suggestions and questions as well. We want to just say thank you to all of you who have been listening and all of you that have reached out to us. It really means the world to us. We, we work really hard on this. So it's really great when we hear like love and positive feedback from you guys. But yeah, so we love you all. Go sign that petition. It only takes two seconds. Yep. Thanks for listening for sure. So until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.